Welcome to The Storyboard, a podcast about the creative minds behind today's leading film, television, and commercial productions. We explore the topics affecting today's top content creators, from process to politics and anything in between. The Storyboard is a joint production brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge, leaders in post-production audio and video. I'm Sean Grayson. We're recording this conversation in one of the many luxurious studios here at Sound Lounge on Fifth Avenue in the Flatiron District in the heart of New York City. Today's guests are Rochelle Madden, who is the executive director of the AICE, and award-winning editor Chris Franklin, owner of Big Sky Edit and a member of AICE's New York board. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Rochelle, as executive director of AICE, you have the rare opportunity to see and visit a wide cross-section of post houses across the country. What are you seeing out there? What's the state of our industry? It varies widely by market. I've been on the board of AICE for about 10 years prior to taking on this role. And I remember when I joined the international board for the first time, that was one of the things I was most struck by was meeting all of these people in the different markets and understanding the differences between the markets and what people are dealing with and you know what could be a really big issue in the New York market is doesn't even rate on the radar in San Francisco and vice versa. But there are that said certain similarities. Most of our companies are doing probably about 30 or 40% more work to make the same amount of money. So, you know, the works out there their billings are, you know, remaining steady over the years, but they're doing a lot more work to make that money. And so what that translates to is obviously smaller profit margins. Um, everyone's examining their workflows, their compensation models, everything across the board, and, and really having to rethink the model of their company. Chris, what do you see? It's tricky. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and I've certainly seen the transition from film to digital and, uh, you know, experienced it um, firsthand. And I think the thing that has been the biggest challenge on top of trying to keep your company profitable is trying to do things within the timeframes that you're given, which are usually pretty unrealistic. And certainly with the advent of digital files, as opposed to film, we're dealing with I would say three times as much footage as we used to, as opposed to, you know, when we used to shoot on film. So for any given spot, say a 30-second spot, you would get maybe, I don't know, three to four hours of footage if they shot on film. Now you get 12. For any given hour of footage, it takes you maybe three to four hours to really understand that footage in terms of going through it. So with the 30-second spot, you would get four hours in, and you have 12 hours ahead of you or, you know... 15 hours ahead of you to go through that, really cull it down, select, and get ready to edit. And the hardest part is selecting the footage and going through it. Are there any advantages to the fact that there's just more footage coming in for you as an editor to understand, you know, what what's behind the uh, the content? Yeah, I mean, realistically, sure. I mean, you want to have as much footage as you can to work with, yeah. assuming that there was a discipline behind it when it was shot. Right. Um, and generally, yes, I, I think you know when you're working with really experienced directors, you're going to get really really disciplined footage. Sometimes that's not the case, though. I mean, sometimes, you know, the camera just rolls or they have, you know, three, four cameras going at the same time. They're doing pickup footage with, you know, a couple of side cameras. 
and then all of a sudden you have a lot of stuff to deal with. Mm. But the you know the the trick on that is everybody expects it in the same time frame. You know, okay, well you know here are the dailies we'll see in two days with a cut, and it's like whoa whoa wait <laughs> a minute you know we got to have some time with this thing, and we want to make sure. I mean, certainly any editor wants to make sure that when they present a rough cut, it's tight and it's really thought out. But if you don't have that time to flesh that material out, um, you're going to be in big trouble. I remember one director, uh, a friend of mine, had mentioned, he said, it's really about getting all the pain out of the way beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, you really go through and go through the painful process of selecting material and spending hours and hours and hours looking it over so you really understand it. And then when you present a rough cut, then hopefully it's about, you know, concept, not about, you know, Where's this shot? Where's this shot? Where's this shot? And then you have to, you know, go through and rifle through and find it. And, you know, a lot of that comes with experience, too. So the biggest challenge is trying to make people understand the, the scope of time needed to generate something that is worthwhile. Right. You know, because then the worst thing is spending hours and hours and hours recutting because something wasn't really thought out. Well, I just switch gears for a moment uh, and speak a little about the ad agency world. Uh, Rochelle, I'd like to get your take uh, on the current trend of ad agencies building out their own in-house post and production divisions. I know this is a subject that you're passionate about because it has a direct effect uh, on the independence. Uh, how is this affecting uh, the brand agency relationship uh, and the agent vendor dynamic? Well, it's interesting because the agent vendor dynamic has changed because, you know, it's taken what our member companies, you know, the people that used to be their clients and made them their competitors. And so not only, not just their competitors, but both client and competitor at the same time. Yeah. So that's changed that dynamic incredibly. And we put out a statement about a year and a half ago that really talks about what our concerns are and outlines our concerns. And we got to a point where, um, as an association, we were hearing time and again that there was a concern that there was a lack of transparency between the, the ad agency and the client. Yeah. And so we we heard a lot of that and decided to put a statement out that we aimed mostly at the client community to try and educate and bring awareness. Uh, and And what was the reaction? Well... <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of reaction to it. I, uh, the the A and A, you know, picked it up immediately and and blogged about it and said, you know, this is something our members need to know about, and yeah. they've helped us to try and push that out to their members. And the purpose behind us putting this statement out was just simply calling for awareness and transparency. Ad agencies opening their own in-house facilities to compete with ours is fine. They're entitled to be in any business that they want to be in. Um, But we feel that it's very important that they compete fairly and honestly and openly. I mean, it should go without saying anyway that every client wants the best that they can get for whatever budget and whatever money that they're spending, the best talent that they can get, and the best value. And we feel very strongly that they're only getting that when it's a true, honest competition situation. And we saw a lot of that disappearing. Yeah, and on the creative side, I think you had uh, used the term inbred creative 
Chris, do you have any uh, perspective on that regarding inbred editors? <laughs> uh, inbred creative <clears throat> solutions from the agency versus using outside vendors independence. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, have, I have pretty strong feelings about that. I, you know, that, and a, a lot of it has to do with the craft in and of itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got into this business because I love to edit. I mean, I literally love to edit. And one of the reasons why I started the company was because I wanted to do it on my own terms. And, uh, you know, have a great bunch of people that um, work for me at Big Sky, and they're, it's a wonderful company. But the thing is, the other two editors that are working with me were my assistants, and they've come up within the company, and they're phenomenally talented editors. And I had the great opportunity to teach them as, you know, they came up and, and, you know, help them along and they were able to grow roots within our company. And honestly, it is an important part of the craft to try to teach people how to do it well, not just how to do it. And it is very difficult to teach people how to do it well. And some people have it and some people don't. The unfortunate part for me, when I see, you know, situations like, you know, in-house editing is it's a very transient group that just kind of move in and out. There's no relationship to craft. You're just kind of coming in and doing something and then you're moving on. It is merely there to pump out material. And I think that's tragic on some levels because I, I really, I love the craft. I respect the craft. It's difficult. It is very difficult to do. It is also something that needs to be done alone most of the time. You don't need someone looking over your shoulder um, at all. In fact, it, you won't get good work if someone's looking over your shoulder. Um, and it's much like writing. You need to, you know, you need to be able to leave the room when you need to. You need to pace when you need to. You need to, you know, take a ten-block walk because you're trying to work something out in your head. If you're on an hourly rate and someone's paying you an hour and they're going to, you know, keep you in a room, you're generally not going to get great work. Right. Can guarantee that. Right. Mm -hmm. I think what you said touched on another sort of really relevant point, which is that Chris opened his company because he's passionate about editing and he wanted to find a way to be able to do what he's passionate about and make a living at it. Whereas the ad agency in-house companies have all been opened because they want to capture revenue yeah. and not because it's something they're passionate about and the craft and, mm -hmm. and any of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's fundamentally two different business models. And when you've got a business that's simply based on making money versus a business that's based on the passion right. and you know the, the craft and the creative passion. Yeah, then, and, and nurturing. And then nurturing talent. the talent nurturing and all talent, of that. Yeah. yeah. You're just the quality difference yeah. is going to become evident. Sure. I mean, it, it, it's it interesting does. what Rochelle is saying, too, because, I, I mean, I'm, I won't name names, but I'm sure, you know, everybody has a couple in their head that they know. But I, I've been in this business a while, and every company that I've seen uh, on the post-production side that was merely set up to make money, and there were quite a few, just to make money, they did not survive. Yeah. They absolutely did not survive. You know, and it's, you know, it's like anything. It's like, a, you know, a, anything that is involved in a creative situation, even a restaurant. If you open up a restaurant just to make money, 
you're crazy and it's not going to survive. Every restaurant that opens up that is great is because they're passionate about what they do. And it's a service industry, just like we're a service industry. And you have to deliver an excellent, excellent product on the other end. You're not just merely putting visuals and sound together. Do you see yourself as an artist, Chris? I know. Uh, uh, craftsperson. How's that? Craftsperson. Yeah, no, artist is. No, I won't say that. Okay. But I no. I uh, you know I I just love doing it. Yeah. You know, I really love doing it, and I and I like uh, I like. It was probably from you know sniffing way too much airplane glue when I was a kid, <laughs> um, and it was because I was building models. So, uh, but uh, there's yeah. the secret, ladies. Yeah, and gentlemen. I was exposed to that quite quite a bit in a closed room. So now I just sit and smell Sharpies all day. And, uh, <laughs> well, you're uh, you're well known for your comedy work uh, with recent spots for Nespresso uh, featuring Danny DeVito and George Clooney. Nationwide with Peyton Manning and E-Trade with Kevin Spacey, uh, to name just a few. How is cutting for comedy different from other genres? It's harder. It's harder. <laughs> it's harder. Yeah. How is it um, harder? It's harder because um, you really have to kind of whittle down performances and, and find the stuff that really play off each other well. Generally, I always find that the stuff that comes back that everybody thought was hysterical on the shoot. Is, Turns out not to be. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's usually the thing that, you know, everybody breaks up at. And there, there were rare instances where I think something truly funny happens, but a lot of that is just the tedium of watching a shoot and they'll, they'll laugh at anything at that point. But it's really kind of putting that stuff together and then finding out, again, how sound plays against that because sound is so important in putting something together that's funny. Yeah. Whether it's just, you know, an off-camera sound effect or a chair squeak or someone's glance and then just the sound of the room hanging. I mean, it's all that stuff. And that is an important part of it for me um, in terms of trying to get it, you know, played really well. But, you know, there are other people that, you know, other comedy editors that are absolutely brilliant that um, they have a different process, you know, and I just like crazy admire their work. You know, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, and who might some of those be? I, Ian McKenzie, yeah. you know, is a big hero of mine, uh, and, and Gavin as well. You know, they're really brilliant, brilliant at what they do. And I laugh at their stuff, which mm -hmm. is good. So. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little about uh, new technology trends. Virtual reality is uh, certainly a hot topic right now, as is augmented reality. Um, is it different uh, than uh, 3D, the 3D trend from, from a few years ago? Virtual reality? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 3D uh. came and went. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's people who feel a lot more confident about VR. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'd love to get either of your perspectives on virtual reality, AR, and, uh, and the overall trend. Is it for real or is it, is it just a trend? It certainly feels more real. And I don't have a lot to base that on at this point. But yeah. it just feels like something I hear a lot more people talking about. It seems like people, marketers probably, are putting a lot of thought and um, research into it and starting to embrace it. Yeah. I find it difficult to see anything that's going to catch on where you have to wear something. Yeah, And I, I like watching someone watch virtual reality. I think that's absolutely <laughs> yeah. the funniest yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. So 
I hope yeah. it stays around just for that to see old people in the room moving their heads around. <laughs> but um, but beyond that, I I don't know. It'll be interesting. I, I I think a lot of it'll have to do with the fact that if you can free yourself from any kind of devices, I know they were you know trying to nail 3D for a while with that too. Right. I guess the interesting thing to me is is how much effort people really want to put into something when they're watching it or if they really want someone else to do the work for them, which is, you know, the director and the writer and, you know, that kind of thing. I, you know, because I, I mean, we've certainly seen trends come along where you can pick camera angles at the end or you can choose different endings for a movie. Right. And uh, the novelty was brief on that, but, uh, you know, outside of, you know, in a gaming situation where people are, you know, doing video games, I... I don't see that going that far right now. What about uh, Ultra HD? I mean, we're seeing 4K TVs being advertised everywhere now, and, and some of the streaming services are starting to offer UHD content. Uh, are any of your clients requesting UHD or, or 4K and or HDR versions of their spots? Not yet, but yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be too far off where we're going to be doing that. Is it something you're recommending to your clients for future proofing? Uh, we've started to talk about it in terms of wanting to do that, and I know... I know Chris has talked about it a lot yeah. at uh, Nice Shoes, and, right. and certainly other people have talked about it. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, um, you know, we saw the when HD came, nobody was really embracing it too quickly because they just had a hard understanding of just what 16.9 meant. So right. once everybody nailed the rectangle, I think we kind of jumped on it and everybody was happy <laughs> with it. The rectangle. Yeah. But the but with I think with um, 4K, I think there's an opportunity to, you know, certainly people see, you know, SD stuff now and say, oh my God, I can't believe that's what we accepted as, you know, right. as quality. And I, I, hopefully people will use that knowledge and say, all right, let's, let's at least finish it so we have it. Yeah. And then it will look great, you know, yeah. five years from now or six yeah. years from now. Uh, Rochelle, talk to me about Camp Kuleshov. What is it? Oh, I, Chris is really the person that should talk about Camp Kuleshov. Yeah. Okay. It's an amazing competition that we've put together. It actually started out of Chicago. Yeah. I want to say almost 15 years ago. Yep. Uh, Catherine Hempel from Cutters, amazing editor at Cutters, uh, started it. I believe, way back then in Chicago. And uh, it has grown and evolved, but Chris has been incredibly involved in it. And Big Sky is very, very involved as a company in putting it together. So yeah. I'll Chris can what's talk been, a bit about what's it. What's been your involvement, Chris? <clears throat> uh, Camp Kuleshov, I started doing it when, when we started doing it in New York. And it was a, a, 12 years ago. Yeah. Right? 12 years yeah, ago? Yeah. 11 or 12 years, years ago. years after Chicago. And we started, it was originally called Trailer Park. And then there was a company called Trailer Park. I said, no, 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 you can't call <laughs> can't it that. Use that. <laughs> so we decided to come up with a name, and uh, we came up with Camp Kuleshov because of Lev Kuleshov, the the German um, filmmaker, or I'm sorry, Russian filmmaker, who um, would transpose images and get different reactions from people. So you'd see a, a bowl, and you'd see a man looking at the bowl, and people would assume that the man is hungry. And then he'd change the bowl and he'd put a baby in there. And then people would say, oh, he's sympathetic to the baby. Mm -hmm. And it was classic editing. It's like you're changing people's reactions to things based on what they're seeing. And the Kuleshov experiment is tremendous. So we decided to call it Camp Kuleshov just because it's the core of what we do, which is manipulating images and manipulating how people see things. Yeah. And it was also the core of what the competition was, which is it was for assistance. And what we did was we gave the assistants a task. And the first year we did it, um, we gave them the task of, I think we gave them a list of like three or four movies. Mm -hmm. And we said, take these four, three or four movies 
and change what they are. Do a trailer for it, but if it's a musical, you need to make it a drama. If it's a horror film, you need to make it something else, but not a horror film. Mm -hmm. And the first year that we did it, we had a phenomenal success with the first and second place entries, which was uh, the second place entry was somebody did West Side Story as a vampire film, which (laughs) blew me away because it was so brilliant. And then the winner was Robert Reang of PS260, who took The Shining and made it into a family film. And that thing um, had literally blew up their server at PS260 because mm-hmm. he had it up there. And this was before YouTube and you know Facebook and all that. And yeah. they people were literally trying to download it all over the place because everybody was so excited about it. And it became a huge viral thing. And actually, I just saw it on a news site in Chicago. Someone posted it saying, oh, my God, I've never seen this before. Oh, wow. and blah, blah. It has a life that continues, continues. to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that kind of spawned the whole thing in terms of people really jumping on it. And last year, for the first time, we had seven of our eight chapters participated because it's a local event. It yeah. still gets planned and organized at the local level. And not every chapter was doing it every year. But this past year, we made a big push, and we had seven of our eight chapters participate. And the winners from each of the chapters uh, were put into competition against each other, and we crowned a national, international grand prize winner, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really fun. So it added an extra layer to it. And I think we ended up with, we had about 150 entries across the country. Yeah. And, you know, it's an amazing, and the editors love it. The assistants love it, obviously. It's a really exciting thing for them to be able to. And it goes back to the mentorship thing too, because it's an opportunity for the entire community to go out and just support the assistants who spend, you know, the other 364 days a year supporting right. them. And a lot of a lot of assistants have said that it's really been their opportunity to show themselves within their company and to show other people what they can do. And, and it has given them a leg up in terms of progressing as editors. Yeah. There was one that sticks in my memory, and I, I, I think it was somebody from Kyle Edit who did it. I can't remember his name, but he was he was so good. And he's probably listening and saying, "Oh, Jesus Christ, I can't remember my name." <laughs> um, but it was uh, Dan and Kyle at it, and he did a Groundhog Day as a German uh, silent German expressionistic film. And I think, I think I saw that. Yeah, and I remember looking at it and going, "Oh my God, the shots are yeah. perfect." Yeah. I mean, perfect yeah. that he picked to do this, and I was just I was blown away by it. And I was like, that shows a well of knowledge that you draw on as an editor to really put something together. Yeah. Well, speaking of nurturing, Chris, what kind of advice could you give to young editors today? If you can absorb everything that you see and hear, I mean, literally to the point of walking down the street or, or, you know, the one exercise that I always love and, and I always did it, do it when I'm at a table of people and I tell our assistants to do it and other editors to do it, is if you're sitting at a table and, and there's five people at the table having a conversation, watch the people that aren't talking and watch what they do and watch their expressions, watch how they engage in people because those are cutaways. Right. And how would you deal with that? You know, and, and where do you follow your eye? When, you know, when someone's looking at someone, how do you follow that eye? And how do you, you know, what are they doing with their hands? All these little things. And if you absorb that stuff, 
it's only going to help you when you're working because you understand, you know, possibly, you know, behavior. Or you understand how someone looks when they're uncomfortable. Or you understand, you know, what someone's eyes look like when they're engaged or when they check out. You know, and you can watch, you know, a performance and, you know, you, you can watch a performance in dailies and you can see the actor leave. You can just see their eyes go blank and you're like, oh, that's not good, you know, but then all of a sudden something happens and like that's a moment and then you try to put that aside and hopefully you can use it somewhere and then all of a sudden you realize it becomes the key to what you're doing, you know, and there are, there are so many situations in that where you see a piece of work that someone did and you know that that person knew that scene was going to be the, the hub of the wheel that they were building. The one that comes to mind, and it's one of my favorite spots of all time, and it was uh, cut by Andre Betts. And it was a Volkswagen spot, the Pink Moon spot. Mm -hmm. Brilliant spot, Dayton Ferris directed it. And absolutely brilliant spot. But the key to that, for me, the key to that spot is one scene where, and you can find it on YouTube, hopefully a good copy of it, and it's four uh, kids in a Volkswagen, in a convertible Volkswagen, driving at night. And they're looking at the sky or whatever. And there's one scene in the middle where the boy in the back seat is looking at the girl, but the girl is looking at the moon. And he's looking at her, look looking at the moon. At moon. And that scene is killer. That, I guarantee you, that's what makes that spot great. And it's usually not what people pick up on. But... I can tell you that I'm, I'm 900%, not 99% uh, <laughs> convinced that that became one of those scenes that you built out from. Yeah. You know, you just hooked into it and said, that's, I, I have to save that, and I got to build up to that, and I got to make that pay off. And it's, it's a killer scene. Yeah. And there are, you know, scenes like that in movies, too, where someone is watching someone, and it's generally a reaction. But it's the, it's the reactions that are the things that make things work. Yeah. Rochelle, what changes do you see down the road for our industry? And how will the AICE help guide its members towards that future? You know, it was at the uh, ANA conference last year, and there was a speaker there. And it was really interesting what he said, which was, um, you know, more has changed in the last five years in advertising and marketing than in the last hundred before it. And more is going to change in the next 12 months than in the next five years. I don't see it as our role to know what the future is. I just see it as our role to do everything we can to give our members the tools and resources to continue advocating for a healthy community, a healthy independent industry, you know, within this world that we're all in, this advertising and marketing communications realm. Um, And as long as we're doing that, then people will be able to and be prepared to handle whatever the future is for them. I want to thank both of our guests uh, today, Rochelle Madden and uh, Chris Franklin, for spending time with us and for uh, a really engaging and insightful conversation. Thank you so much. The Storyboard Podcast is brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge, leaders in post-production audio and video. Executive producers are Sean Grace and Mike Gulo, with producers Paul DeCames and Taylor Maggard. Audio recording by Miles Regan. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening.